0: Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. How
1: many think the secret is God is in control? How many think the secret is God is all-powerful, Isaiah 40? How many are thinking? Good. Two hands went up. Take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 4. Our foundation is sure. As our choir just sung, our foundation is sure. We have the Lord Jesus as the chief cornerstone of the building that God is building. And on top of that cornerstone of the foundation that's been laid in his word, we can find the answer to the riddle of life. We can find the solution to our problem of being controlled by our circumstances. We can learn contentment. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. We'll start there for the sake of time. You recall that Paul is thanking the Philippian Christians for some help that they gave him, help of a material nature. And he's thanking them for their love and their expression of love to him while he was in prison. But he says in verse 11, he's very cautious as to how he thanks them. He doesn't want them to think that he couldn't have gotten along without it. And so what he says is, not that I speak from wants. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In other words, if you didn't, if you wouldn't have given me that gift, I'd have been okay. Since you did give it to me, that's better. I like that too. I don't have any wants. My God is in charge of my life. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret. Of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 for a passage that I'd like to read and refer to a little bit later. Ephesians chapter 2, reading the first five verses. Paul again speaking. Now he's talking to the Ephesian Christians and he says to them, And you were dead. And your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But the beautiful buts in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. I was dead. Now I'm alive. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Two weeks ago, I began a series entitled The Secret of Contentment. In that first message, I defined contentment. How did I define it? Anybody recall? What's contentment biblically? here or two weeks ago? (laughs) Good. In the back. Manny, what's contentment? What's contentment? I saw your hand go up. Were you just scratching your head or something? Right. (laughs) What you were going to say but couldn't think of the words are contentment is self-sufficiency. Contentment is the ability to live your life in a way that is not controlled by your circumstances. That's contentment. I can accept whatever happens to me. I need not be controlled by anything. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, I have all the resources I need to be what I should be. That's what contentment is, being really able to accept whatever happens in your life because you have all that you need within yourself to live as you want to live, regardless of what happens. Then in last week's sermon, I suggested that if we are to learn the secret of contentment What I want to discuss today, if we're to learn that secret, we must be very, very careful to make sure that our worldview, the way we're thinking about life in general, is correct. And I went through seven worldviews and suggested that one of them is true. The other six are lies. They're false. They're not true to reality. The first worldview that I said was true was theism, Christian theism. The belief that there is a personal God, a God who is personally and vitally interested in me, has seen me in my problem, has seen me as a sinner, and has come to take care of the problem that I couldn't handle. He died on the cross to pay for my sins when I put my faith and trust in him, and I have that personal relationship with a God who is personally and vitally interested in every detail of my life. That's theism. The second position was? Deism, which teaches that there may be a God, but he's irrelevant to the way that I live. I'm trying to make it, and he simply couldn't care less. The third position is? Naturalism. Naturalism, the position that there is no God. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Just get whatever you can. Live for pleasure. Live for new homes. Live for money. Live for fame. Live for pleasure. Live for whatever. There's no God anyhow. The fourth position, nihilism, or nihilism, some pronounce it. Nihilism, the position that flows naturally from naturalism. Since there is no God, life is stupid anyhow, so just quit. That's what nihilism says. Just give up, get discouraged, despair, don't try. There's no point to it anyhow. Life is just an absurd accident. That's nihilism. The fifth position is existentialism, which says it's a reaction to nihilism, and it said, yes, life is absurd, but that life does not need to prevent you from making choices. Still make your choice. But because we can never make the choice not to die, existentialism seems run up against a brick wall. And so the sixth position developed, which is Pantheism, I heard one lone voice right behind me. Thank you. Pantheism, which teaches that. Since life really is absurd, since there's no meaning to it, since there's nothing here of any worth whatsoever, what you need to do is simply to lose yourself by meditation into some kind of a higher something or other, which we're going to call some impersonal infinite God. The God not of our traditional Western culture, but the God of the Eastern culture. The God who's impersonal, the God who is all, the God who is everything, the God who is not a person. Rise above your circumstances, lose yourself in that, and uh, as a result you'll find contentment. That's pantheism. But because that destroys the personality because that be- makes you become an impersonal thing the last position which I believe is the growing and prominent and most dangerous position is human theism It's my choice of words human theism which says rather than my losing my personality in God let me understand that I am all there is and really God is within me not in the way we Christians say, Christ in you the hope of glory, but that your body the a temple of the Holy Ghost. Not that at all. But rather, if I alter my consciousness, if I expand my consciousness, if I realize how great I am, how I can do anything, how nothing need control me, then I can rule the world. I can be everything. I can just handle problems without any problem at all. That's human theism. Today, based on the theistic position that there is a personal God who's personally involved with you and me, I want to answer the question, what is the secret? Let me answer the question by first asking question. You learn that in professional training. When you have no idea what the real answer is, you just ask a lot of questions and people think you're bright. How is your life working? Here's the question I want you to answer. How is your life working? right this moment. Think about it for a minute. How's your life right now working? You miserable? You frustrated? You despairing? You bitter? You ineffective? Appetites that are uncontrolled? Habits you can't break? How's your life working right this moment? Do you believe that it would work better if something in your life were different? Do you believe that your life would somehow work better if there were some element in your life that were different? Would it work better if you had more time, less pressure, more money, a different spouse, or perhaps the spouse that you have remade, or maybe just a spouse? (laughs) Do you believe that there is something, anything, which if it were different, would make your life better? How do you suppose Paul would answer that question if he were here sitting in the audience this morning? Suppose the Apostle Paul were sitting there, and I said, Paul, how do to answer that question. What do you think he'd say? I think, on the basis of the book of Philippians and the rest of his works, I think Paul would say, no, I don't need anything to be different. Nothing at all. I need nothing else to be different in order for my life to work at peak efficiency. Just as things are, I have all that I need to live just as I want to, just as I choose to, to accomplish all my goals, no matter what happens. Recall Paul essentially said that in Philippians 4 but when he said it remember his circumstances I mentioned last week he was sitting in a jail chained to two guards and he was saying things are fine. Don't really like them all that much maybe. I wouldn't mind if certain things were different but if they're this way that's fine. I can accept it. I'm content. My life can keep on going and I can accomplish all that I want to accomplish. I'm free. I'm content. I can accept all this. Paul, how did you learn that? How are you able to maintain the sense of momentum, the sense of aliveness, the sense of commitment to God, irrespective of your circumstances? My commitment is such a shaky thing. Isn't yours? You read a good book that just gets you all pumped up, or you hear a sermon, or you come to a Sunday evening service and get all fired up to live for the Lord, and then uh, you wash your brakes. Your car doesn't work. Your brakes squeak. A major problem in your family happens, an illness takes place. And what happens to your commitment? This kind of floats away sometimes. Paul says he was content with anything. His excitement, his enthusiasm for life, didn't vary. If we are to learn the secret of living consistently regardless of our circumstances, then what I, to understand that secret, what I want to do this morning is this. I want to consider the condition of discontentment. The condition of discontentment meaning where we are controlled by our circumstances, where we can't accept certain things in our lives. Certain things aren't what we want them to be, they're, they're not as we want them, and we just can't accept them, we just can't make ourselves live for God until that gets changed. That's discontentment. And I want to take a look at the cause of discontentment, and then if we can figure out what the cure for that cause of discontentment is, if we can figure out the cure, then I believe we'll have the secrecy. Of contentment. If we can cure the problem that's causing our discontentment, the cause will be gone, our discontentment will be gone, and we'll have contentment. We'll know what Paul was talking about. So let me, start, let, let me organize my comments this morning under two headings. First, the cause of discontentment. And secondly, the cure for discontentment. First, the cause of our lack of contentment, or why are we controlled by our circumstances? The lack of contentment really means that I find myself responding to what's happening too much. It gets in the way of how I want to live for the Lord. And I just don't know how to accept all that and still keep on going, peacefully, joyfully. What's the cause of our discontentment? I believe the cause is given in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to look at that with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Notice, Paul begins that portion where I believe he is Discussing the cause of our discontentment, he begins the discussion by saying that people apart from God, all of us at one time apart from God, were dead. Absolutely dead, Paul says. We may be alive as physical beings, we may be alive as social beings, but as beings who can meaningfully move in our world as beings who have a relationship with God and can draw upon his resources who can make things happen as beings who really are free and alive Paul says you are dead you are dead he doesn't say we have a divine spark of goodness needing to be fanned and encouraged he doesn't say we're ignorant needing instruction he doesn't say we're misguided needing direction as most of our systems of penology and psychology teach today Paul said no no the problem isn't that you're misguided and you need direction that you're mentally ill and need psychotherapy the problem is you're dead that's what Paul says you ever wonder why it's so hard to make a decision and stick to it you make a decision like starting today I'm going to go on a diet as of today I'm never going to holler at my kids again From now on When people cut me down I'm going to respond With a smile And a gracious comment And you make your decisions We don't stick with them Why? Why is it so hard? The essence of the answer I believe is found In Paul's teaching That apart from God We're dead Listen as I develop This thought Paul says that The first thing it means To be dead Paul goes on to discuss What it means to be dead In verse 2 The first thing That it means When Paul says We're dead Apart from faith In Jesus Christ is that we were all controlled... This is verse 2. We were all controlled by a false world view. That's what he's saying in verse 2. We all walked according to the age of this world. We were all controlled by a false worldview. All of those worldviews that I discussed last week, except for theism, all of the other worldviews, which I believe are all absolutely false, all those views have one thing in common. They all deny that there really is a personal God. A real person who really is there, who is personally and vitally interested in you. They all deny that. Theism right through human theism. They all deny that there is a personal God who is vitally interested in me. Each of the false worldviews, Paul goes on to say, are the brainchild of Satan himself. That's what he says. That's pretty heavy. All of these false worldviews are the brainchild of Satan himself. You know what that means? All the approaches to contentment that spring from these false worldviews are satanic, transcendental meditation. My guess, just as an aside, is that TM is going to lose popularity in the next five or ten years. It's not going to grow as the Maharishi predicts, is my guess. My guess is that we're not going to stick with pantheism. Which is what TM is all about. My guess is that we're going to move up into a position that springs from human theism. That's the final blasphemy. If pantheism says that we can lose ourselves in this impersonal thing we're going to call God, human theism says, no, you need not lose yourself. You can bring God into you. Recognize that the self and God are inseparable. Recognize you have all that you need when you expand your consciousness to experience everything and anything. You are the center of existence, each one of you. That's what human theism teaches. And I believe we're going to see the rise of that much more in our culture. We're already seeing it in a number of quarters. You all ever hear of uh, Werner Erhard? EST, not ESP, but EST, like in toy. Erhard, seminars, training, California-based production, which invites people to come for 250 bucks for two weekends, 60 hours total, 30 hours each weekend, And they promised that within those two weekends you will be able to experience an expanded consciousness such that you will find contentment. well-known psychiatrist from from, uh, New Orleans has said that I believe this is the first thing that really works. He said that up until then he said that he was a nihilistic therapist which means he was looking for everything and believing nothing would work. He said, but now I think i found it. EST does it. John Denver, the singer, he devoted his last album, album to Werner Erhard and EST. Valerie Harper, woman who plays Rhoda on television, she credits EST with her transformation from a person who was always strained and pressured to a person who is now is enjoying life. Two thousand children ages six to twelve have gone through the training. Parents are sending their kids in masks. EST is a consciousness-expanding movement which helps people experience themselves as absolutely free from any power outside of themselves. In essence, EST is a tribute to the final supremacy of the self, the ultimate blasphemy. The self is one who is totally uncontrolled by anything external. The assertion of the self. Man is God. You are now free, Earhart says. You are now free from all the trappings of civilization. Free from all your culture. You are free to be who you are. You can live independent of your circumstances. That's contentment. I believe that Earhart is giving a very dangerous counterfeit of the real thing. It's dangerous because it's so close. Satan's master plan is what? Counterfeiting. He's an imitator. The Lord, Matthew 13, sowed seed. What did the the devil do? He went and sowed seed too. Satan's an imitator. The most dangerous heresy is the heresy that's closest to the truth. And Erhard's position is very close to the truth in many important respects. With one problem, it leaves out God. Satan is winning again. Satan wants us to believe that we have something to offer, that we're good, that we're strong, that God may be helpful to get us through a crisis perhaps, but basically we must depend on ourselves. That's what all the six world views teach. We must basically depend on ourselves. Paul says that every one of us here has swallowed that mentality. Every one of us here at one time in our lives has believed we can make it depending on our own strength. We've all believed that, Paul says. That's true of all of us. We've all walked according to the course of this world. He goes on to describe that people who have lived according to that mentality are people who are characterized by something. And he defines in verse 3, and here we're going to get to the cause of discontentment. In verse 3, Paul says, that those people who are walking according to the age of this world, those folks who have believed Satan's lies, are people who live according to the desires, according to the lusts, rather, according to the lusts of the flesh. Lust here is simply a word that means strong desire. It isn't a bad word or a good word. It just simply means strong desire. The Lord said, I have desired to eat this Passover supper with you. uh, In in literal language, that I have lusted to eat this Passover. The word lust simply means desire, either good or bad. In this case, the context means the desire is bad. A lust according to our flesh. Our flesh here, I believe, referring to all that we are apart from Christ. The natural man, the man, the whole man, apart from Jesus, we have certain desires. Those of us apart from Christ, before we came to know Christ, we have certain desires of certain nature, certain things that we want to happen, and we have certain desires that, we, that they should happen. And we live according to that. In other words, all it means is we all want our own way. That's all it means. People who have bought this false world view are simply desiring to get their own way, to get things happening the way they should. How can you be content when things have to happen a certain way, and they don't? Paul goes on to be more precise about the lust of the flesh and he tells us that there are two component parts to this lust of the flesh. Two component parts which he calls the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. Now the word for desire is a word that's different than the word for lust. Follow this. The word for lust simply means a desire. A relatively strong desire. The word for desire that's given here in the New American Standard in verse 3, that when Paul says indulging the desires of the flesh, the word that he's using is a little bit different. It's more than just a strong desire, more than just a lust. Now it takes on the quality of being a commanding, compelling, controlling desire. One that controls us. Psychologists might substitute the word drive. Paul says, You're dead. You live according to Satan's thinking. And you're controlled by drives within you that demand gratification. Anybody here have a hard time breaking a bad habit? Sure you do. All of us do. We're controlled by our drives within us, Paul says. Apart from Christ, we're helplessly driven by these desires of the flesh and of the mind. What are the desires of the flesh and of the mind? What's Paul talking about? By the desire of the flesh, I believe Paul is primarily referring in this particular instance... To those physical appetites that we have. Did you ever, did you ever um, walk by a table loaded with desserts and you felt the desire of the flesh? And you said, Oh, I shouldn't get into that. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, and so you spend half an hour kind of walking away from the table, and then walking back and thinking about it some more. And maybe you pray about it. Maybe you quote some scripture to yourself, and you you know do all kinds of things. Within half an hour, you've talked yourself into one little bite wouldn't hurt. <laughs> and so you have your little bite. You just give it in to a desire of the flesh. Apart from God, you're helpless to do anything but that. Ultimately, victory on occasion, perhaps, but ultimately you're controlled. God says by the desire of the flesh. People who are hooked on sweets or alcohol or sex, whatever it might be, are people who are controlled by those desires. They're either dead people or they're living like dead people. They may have life, but they're not exhibiting that life that they have. They cannot accept the circumstance which denies the gratification for their desire. How can I be content if I truly, desperately need something and it doesn't come? And you tell me to accept that. I can't. It's impossible. There's no contentment there. The cause of discontent is what? I have a compelling desire. I need something to happen in a certain way. It has to be. It doesn't happen that way. I can't accept it. The desires of the mind. What's Paul referring to there? If the desires of the flesh are our physical desires, the desires of the mind, I believe, are our personal desires. As personal beings, we have desires. Paul says dead people who believe Satan's lies are controlled by the desires of the mind. And I believe you can define it this way. The desire of the mind is anything which absorbs your mental attention and energy. The desire of the mind is anything which absorbs your mental attention and energy. How much time do we spend wondering, what do people really think of me? That's a desire of the mind. How much time do we spend wondering, how do I look? How much time do we spend wondering, will I be able to handle this social situation coming up? am I going to come across like a klutz? Or in Fonzie's terms, will I come across like a nerd? (laughs) Is your mental energy devoted to being witty? Do you regularly think about and thrive on choice bits of gossip? Is your mental energy spent in figuring out ways to relax, to change your schedule, to get a better job or more money? Is your thought life consumed by a desire to have more knowledge? to be more gifted wish you're more talented to have a more advanced place in church whatever that means are you regularly thinking about how you wish things were as opposed to dealing with how things are anybody have problems like that sure you do just like me ever try to stop thinking that way today I'm not going to worry what people think of me good luck how do you get out of it Paul says a dead person can't get out of it he's stuck with it there's no contentment there's no ability to live independently of your circumstances because I literally am controlled by these desires of my mind which, which which must be gratified in my world if you don't like me that's terrible the desires of my mind are not satisfied what I'm saying is this in summary this first point the cause of our discontent is our compelling desire our compelling desire to satisfy our physical drives and our personal drives If the world does not provide satisfaction, then we cannot accept our world, because we must have our desires met. So either we end up rearranging our world to get our desires met, or if we can't do that, we end up miserable. And we wonder, what's the secret of contentment? The problem, the reason you're discontent, is because there's these compelling desires that are controlling you. You must have certain things. You're controlled by it. Paul says, apart from Christ, we're dead. There's no hope. But he goes on to say, there's a solution, there's a cure for this. And that's my second point. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, controlled by our desires of the flesh and mind, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. How did he do that? He did that by paying the penalty of our sins. Do you all know what it means to be a Christian? Some of you here perhaps don't. Some of you here are perhaps thinking that if you just live for Jesus... Or if you read his Bible, if you try to live according to his teachings, that that makes you a Christian. It doesn't. God says that a person is dead because we're sinners, because we're separated from him by sin. The way to become a Christian requires that our sin problem be taken care of. How can that be? I can't take care of it. But Jesus Christ already has. He's paid the full penalty. Well I said to say, Lord Jesus, you died for me, and I trust in you as my Savior, I'm a Christian. That's how to become a Christian. Paul says, now that I'm alive, there are certain implications of that for my life, among other things. Being alive means that I'm no longer subject to the desires of the flesh or of the mind. It means that I have been given the power to live as I choose regardless of what happens to me. I'm no longer controlled by those passions, by those desires. That's what Paul says. Let me illustrate what I mean with a very personal example. Last week, I came home from work after a very, very hectic kind of a day. Very busy, lots of phone calls, spoke to lots of people counseled quite a bit that day. Had a few unnerving emergencies that I had to handle. And I came home feeling tired and spent. Now, as is true of most people who feel like this, people who feel they've worked hard, I wanted to be appreciated for how hard I had worked. I wanted my wife to notice how tired I was. You walk in the door and kind of... Oh, hoping somebody will see and say, gee, you look tired. I wanted to be appreciated. That evening, my wife made a comment which did not reflect an appreciation of how wonderful I was. As a matter of fact, she shared with me an area where I had failed her. She was hurt by something. She shared that. That comment did not satisfy the desires of my mind. I wanted to be appreciated. She wasn't doing it. You know how I felt? Angry. You know what I wanted to say? Doggone it, don't I do anything right? For crying out loud, I do a few things right, don't I? You're picking all the bad things and never notice the good things. That's what I wanted to say. And then because I was preaching that sermon this Sunday,
0: <laughs> I
1: thought to myself, wait a minute, I'm right now acting like a person in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. I thought, right now, I'm acting like a dead man. But I'm not a dead man. I'm not a dead man. I don't have to have my behavior controlled by the circumstance which did not fulfill the desire of my mind. A dead man would have to hold the anger, either hold the grudge or express it viciously. A dead man can do nothing else. We're controlled by the desires of our mind. But I'm alive. God tells me. And I began to realize that I didn't have to snap back at her. I wanted to, but I didn't have to. And that really bothered me, because I still wanted to. <laughs> what fun is there in just going over and saying, gee, hon, did I hurt you? You know, it's so much more fun to say, you you know, this kind of a thing. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did literally. I paced the floor for five minutes trying to wrestle this thing out. She made the comment, and I don't know what she thought I was thinking, but I just started walking around, you know, working this thing out in my head, and I was saying to myself, there's got to be some justification for my snapping at her, because boy, do I want to do it. You know, wouldn't you, if you were there, I kept saying to other people, and I thought, well, you know, she shouldn't be like that, and and, gee, I'm tired, and I'm so tired, I can let down the guard this time, I, I, I just have to say that. And I said, no, 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 I'm not a dead man. I'm alive. I'm not controlled by my circumstances. Why? I've been crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith, with the power of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And Therefore, I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Therefore, God held me accountable for how I behaved at that moment. I had no excuse for behaving other than lovingly towards my wife. And with that kind of thinking I went over and said Honey, I I hurt you let's discuss it In the power of the risen Christ
0: Do
1: you get it? You see? Whose power was used? Any credit to me? Am I boasting? No Apart from him I'd have had to snap at her Or maybe I could have You know, gritted my teeth And said, hi honey It's okay, don't worry (laughs) But inside, just churning But because I'm not a dead man I'm alive I have all the power I need Praise God To be what he wants me to be you get the point. What's our goal as Christians? To live for Jesus. God says, Larry, I saved you because I am so much in love with my Son. Jesus is so perfect. I want to populate the universe with people just like Him, and I've picked out you to become like Jesus. Now let's get let's get with it. I'll give you all the power you need to become like Jesus. And then God says, Nothing's going to happen in your life, and I can't give you all the power you need to behave like the Lord. That's contentment. I have all the resources I need, no matter what my circumstance, to be what God wants me to be. I'm concerned that when we say the secret of contentment is something like God is in control, that although that's a wonderful truth and a very, very important truth, it's too passive a truth. There's a part that we have to play. There has to be a response to saying God is in control, nothing can happen because of his sovereignty that he will not give me the power to respond the way that I should. That's what I must lay hold of. Right now I have a choice. No matter what happens, I have a choice. I'm not controlled by the desires of my flesh or the desires of my mind. I can respond like a Christian. Nothing can get in the way. Bring it on. Put me in prison. Put me here. Take away this. Take away that keep me deprived in this way, nothing can happen that will deprive me of the power to respond like the Lord Jesus, which is my goal, so I'm content. That's all it is. Get a hold of it. The power of God, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the power that created the worlds. the power that divided the Red Sea, that brought water from a rock, Power that cured Naaman's leprosy, the power that raised Lazarus from the from the the grave, the power that brought me from death to life. That power is now at my disposal. God says, Larry, you've all that you need. Go live for me. Oh, but Lord, this circumstance, but this desire, this problem, this difficulty. How can I be content, Larry? You've all the power you need. Live for me. But God, look at this, Larry. You've all the power you need. What's the secret of contentment? Philippians 4.13 I can do it the human theists stop right there Werner Erhard believes Philippians 4.13 the first part Satan's a master at misquoting scripture Paul said I can do all things then he adds the key through Christ he strengthens me bring it on I have the power to handle it do you believe that? When you start believing that, then you start tackling life, as opposed to, oh, life. Sure, you're in prison. Sure, your hands are strapped to two guards. Paul says, I have all the power I need right now to be like Jesus with my hands strapped. Therefore, I can accept what's happening. The desires of my flesh, which are to be in a comfortable bed enjoying a nice meal, the desires of my mind, which include preaching to a large crowd, I don't need to be controlled by those. It's okay to have those desires, but I'm not controlled by them. It isn't happening. That's okay. I'm content. Why? I have all that I need to live for God right where I am, no matter what's happening to me. Folks, that's the secret of contentment. Now, how do you make it work? That's next week. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you that all the power of the Godhead is now resident within me. Within each of us here who are believers, Lord, thank you that we're not making preposterous claims like Earhart is making. Thank you, Lord, that we're not human theists who think that somehow we have it together apart from you. Lord, we don't have it together apart from you. Apart from you, we're dead men. We're dead women. We're people who are controlled by our desires. If things don't go our way... And we simply have to complain. We have to lament. We have to change our circumstances. Lord, if we have strong desires, we have to give in to them if we can. And yet you've come to set us free from all that. You've made us alive. You've made us real people. People who now have all the power we need because of the indwelling Spirit, the God himself dwelling within us, to respond to whatever happens in our life in a way that pleases you. Lord, help us to realize that nothing at all can block us from living like Jesus because we have the power within us. Help us to take hold of this truth that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help us to understand it. Make it practical. Make it real. Make it more than just a bunch of words on a Sunday morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.